HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know it's everyone is waiting to listen to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is about money. It's about money and funding. We talk to so many entrepreneurs, startups, new companies, disruptive companies, things that are non-traditional, and they all require money to get started to get started before they have a product that goes into market, to get started before they can be bringing in sales and profits and all that type of stuff. Oftentimes it takes money to make money. And if you're building a new company or a product, you need someone to believe in your idea, share your dream and help support it. So oftentimes talking to people who are investing in the food tech space are a great indicator of what we will see coming in the food tech space. So I'm really happy to have Fazila Abdul-Rashid here with us today. She is a partner at Revolution, uh, Revolution Growth, a venture capital group that is investing in growth stage companies that are leading disruption in their spaces. And she has a few you know, new food tech companies and things like that, that they've invested in. And she can also tell us what they are looking for. It's also a good indication of what's coming. And if there are any investors or founders listening, this might be a good way to find out how to fine tune a pitch and your idea. So Fazila, thank you for joining us this morning. It is my pleasure, Jen. Pleasure to be on this uh, podcast with you and all of your listeners. I really love talking to people about money and funding. It's one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite topics. It is uh, all encompassing from so many points of view, and you really get a good snapshot about the business because your business is about making other businesses, um, and it's so informative. Uh, I've talked to a lot of different investors and funds and groups. We've had pitch shows. And uh, I think it was maybe a year ago, two years ago, 2021, we had a person on the show who said that this was an unprecedented time for investment and growth in the food tech space, that there was just a lot of money and a lot of opportunity um, that people were willing to put into it. And it was interesting because there was a juxtaposition of the economic stress and uh, issues that came from the pandemic and everyone sheltering in place and the world and finance kind of coming to a stop for a bit. Um, you know, so much economic hardship. But adjacent to that was a lot of money. So it's mm -hmm. interesting to see you know, the arc of these different things. So first of all, let's let's back up a little bit. You have been in the investment space for quite some time. Um, and your career, interestingly, kind of follows the arc of the 
evolution of the food tech space. Absolutely. Uh, it is quite interesting. And I think uh, one of the things I have reflected on is the fact that my career started when the food industry was blossoming away from what you would describe as traditional CPG into thinking about healthier and better for you foods, the start of what was the Lojas movement, um, you know, of health and wellness and thinking about natural and organic foods to today when we are talking about the breadth of what is considered to be food, uh, food tech, which includes things like alternative proteins, healthier and better for you products, uh, cellular technology, et cetera. And it is quite fascinating to see how much that whole category has evolved. And I believe in a very good way. So when we spoke uh, last week, one of the, I think, points of entry in terms of the beginning stages of what we're seeing in this space, you mentioned 2006 and being at a fund where you were investing in an organic food company led by a woman CEO, which at the time was like revolutionary, right? That's right. That's right. And I think that that was interesting. And if you go back to that period of time, a lot of people who decided that they wanted to start companies in better and healthier for you were women because they are the ones when you go back 70% of the decisions of um, purchases that are made in your home are made by the woman, your wife, you know, the mother who buys food for the house. And most of those women realized that what was being seen on the shelves was not meeting their needs of a healthier and better for you product. And so interestingly, the fund that I was at said a, not a bad place to think about finding opportunities was women entrepreneurs trying to disrupt this industry with better and healthier for you food. And I, I reflect on my first Expo West in 2006, it almost felt like a cottage uh, industry with a bunch of, you know, great founders just trying to sell their wares in a category that was, you know, early, to be honest. And that, that conference and that, um, that Expo reflected that at that point. So the company in question was Annie's Organics. That's right. Which their first product was an organic macaroni and cheese in a box, That's I right. think, sort of to right. compete with the the super bright orange craft macaroni and cheese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if you think about if you think about food for your child, there weren't a lot of natural, better for you organic options at that point. So and so thinking about building that category from what became mac and cheese to today, a whole slew of products from cereals to salad dressings, et cetera. So, yeah. It's kind of fascinating. They were such a category leader, I guess, in hindsight, and then branching out, mm -hmm. really staying in, um, not marketed specifically to children, but I think marketed to adults purchasing for children, um, right. And then just sort of those baseline things that people like to eat, graham crackers, cookies. I know they have like little fruit snacks and mm -hmm. um, things like that. So, I mean, really interesting. Organic at the time, people trying to figure out what that meant, you know, labeling and the USDA and the FDA sort of provide guidance. Not really. What does it mean? Why is it better? You know, all that stuff. Interesting. Um, and it seems... Like a long time ago. Does 2006 seem like a long time ago from your point of view? It does and it doesn't just only because one, I think it does when you look at the evolution and how far we've come in, in that time frame. And then it doesn't only because we're still having discussions around how the food industry needs to change. Um, because big CPG companies continue to dominate the category. And there is still a constant conversation around how our relationship with food and nutrition and wellness has to continue to evolve. So that conversation feels like we're having the same conversation and, you know, not much has changed on the flip side. When you look at people trying to continue to innovate in the industry that has changed dramatically with the advent of a lot of new technologies. And people still kind of don't know what organic means. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I read an interesting statistic 
not too long ago saying that the amount of organic milk sold in the United States was larger than the amount of organic milk produced. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. But the I, the other point I was also going to, to your point around people don't know what organic is, I believe, um, I think it's the USDA or the FDA just came out with a statement not so long ago in the last couple of weeks that they need to redefine and more clearly define the de- definition of organic going forward and what com- what products fall and meet that criteria because of exactly what you've described, the proliferation of products in organic and do they actually meet uh, a threshold of what we all believe to be organic, even though ingredient profiles may not fit those. Yeah, it's still a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating tension between product and production and marketing. Mm-hmm. So right. 2006, organic food, healthy, better for you coming on the market. Financial crisis, 2008. That's right. And that's when we move away from innovation and go back to just what we know, as we do in times of crisis, typically. Yeah, quite an interesting pattern. And I'm sure you'll fast forward and we'll see that same pattern play itself out again <laughs> in our recent past. And then do we put the next real milestone in terms of food tech and really making an impact to the general public and broad based up to about 2015, 2016, when we start to see the new plant based products and more um, what I would call functional foods? I think that's right. I think through that period, you do see, you know, the ups, the downs first, as you describe in, you know, the financial crisis of people going back to comfort. But then you see the emergence of a much larger natural and organic category coming out of that, that has really sustained and grown till today. And so I think you can safely and clearly say the natural and organic category is a mainstay. And in 2015, you see a new wave coming out and very much driven by your comment and your your appropriate categorization of functional foods. But also, as I mentioned earlier, I think technologies that can support new ways of developing functional food categories that didn't exist previously. So Tech Bytes went on the air in January of 2015. Lots and lots of years ago, this is episode 284, people. There are a lot of great episodes to listen to in the Tech Bytes archives and on heritageradionetwork.org. And at that time, 2015, 2016, maybe even going into 2017, something that was occurring was just an explosion of startups and innovators. There was an explosion of food. There was always... Um, There were pre-existing incubators for startups and tech startups, but now we started to see food-specific incubators and programs for food tech startups and, you know, shining a light on that and became much more popular. People coming from different countries, different ideas, a lot of women. But and and also interestingly though, we, we interviewed a number of founders and companies, and many of them did not survive. Um, some of them did survive. Some of them are, are names like Caviar and Bento Box and things mm-hmm. like that, which have become you know mainstays. One of the things that was interesting about that period, and it seemed that doing being a founder of a startup, of a tech startup, of a food startup was something that a person in their late 20s, early 30s was doing instead of going to business school, that it was almost an alternative to, I'm not going to go to grad school, I'm not going to go to B school, I'm going to do a startup. And it was very kind of trendy for a certain Mm -hmm. group. And I think there were a lot of people in the category who perceived it as a project or a thing to do as the next stage in their like professional development more so than being dedicated or devoted to an idea. Do you, do, you, do you think that's an accurate observation? It absolutely is. I reflect and, and I do this with my peers. I graduated out of business school in 2006. The companies that I was looking to fund from 2016 onwards were 
as you rightly point out, young individuals, men and women in their 20s and 30s, some straight out of undergrad, some straight out of business school. And the du jour thing to do was start a company in, in Revolution's portfolio. Sweet Green was started by three men out of Georgetown University right around that time. And there were a bunch of other companies um, that I reflect on, Rent the Runway, you know, all of companies like that founded by women, as you point out, founded by men. I think there are just a lot of hungry, energized young people who wanted to say there's a new wave of opportunity sets and companies that reflect my ethos of how I want to live my life, live, eat, shop. Um, spend my money uh, around things that matter to me. And I'm going to build companies that reflect that ethos. And that I think is the combination of the willingness to take risk and willingness to change the way things operate by starting their own businesses that reflect their value system. How do you, what, what type of evaluation crystal ball do you have to make an evaluation faced with you know, dozens and dozens of these types of founders and startups. And how can you discern which ones are going to be successful or have the right idea for something? Um, you know, I had on my show uh, a man whose family had a pizza company, a pizza, a pizza shop, like a family run pizza shop and was struggling uh, with the competition of Domino's that just brought an app mm -hmm. online, which was, you know, extremely well built and functioning. So he started a little app for home for family run pizza businesses to sort of help them, you know, give them technology and give them a platform. And, and that, that app is slice and it yeah, turned into sure. a, it turned into a gigantic, gigantic thing. Um, but then mm -hmm. likewise, there are other companies where, you know, somebody's going to have a great idea of, you know, we're going to streamline the restaurant payment process. And what was the name of that first payment share process thing that was online? <laughs> I vaguely yeah. remember it. I don't know what it is. It's gone now. Um, how how do you how do you as an investor make those kinds of evaluations? Yeah, so I will say again, I will caveat that I spend my time more in growth than seed or early venture. Mm -hmm. And but I think the same lens does lend itself for all investors, particularly institutional investors looking to put money in in new ideas. One, the idea has to be big enough of a category and what we call TAM, right? The total market opportunity that you're going after. And just as you describe it, both of those opportunity sets are actually big market opportunities. Think about how many people eat pizzas or how many people buy, you know, food online today. So the concept of buying something online when it didn't exist is a really interesting idea. Finding a payment solution for, you know, helping um, restaurants get payments is a big idea. So there's one, TAM and market opportunity. Two is who is your key competitor and who are you going up against as you take your strategy and go to market? And in my mind, that is usually the hardest part because what we consider and what we use as terminology is product market fit. Is the product and what you're creating meet what's the customer need and pain point in a way that has an ease of use so that you can easily say, yeah, of course, I'm going to adopt that. It's so easy that I don't even have to think twice about pressing that button and everything gets done. Um, or, you know, just walking into a store that has this huge customer appeal. So those are some of the things that we look for that is an early reflection of, of course, then what you care about at someone at my level is revenue and revenue traction, which is a reflection of the ability to show a strong go-to-market strategy and a strong product market fit. And so I think this is where people have to spend time early on so you don't spend too much money figuring out the first two parts of the equation before you start your business. Because if you don't have those and you don't do enough tests and learns and get enough feedback, you could be spending a lot of money without actually getting to the other side of the equation. And then you get some revenue, which will look great on a piece of paper, but there is a stalling or a point where people don't see the light past where you've been, where you are today and can't see the traction beyond that. So that would be my advice to a lot of people. And the good thing is exactly what you highlighted today. I think today, the way the industry exists, 
has a lot of support systems. I'd say in 2014-15, that didn't exist. And it started getting built up at that point. But there are incubators, there are accelerators, there are different pools of early small capital that comes with support and insights and uh, unique capabilities that can help you grow your business. So you don't have to do it alone. Now you have to go seek them out and you have to be in the right ecosystems to do that. It's one of the things our seed fund Rise of the Res does as they go out and they try to support these companies with small dollars, but also with the supporting, um, highlighting the relevant ecosystems in the places that they are building their businesses so they get the support. It's it's interesting how the business side has grown to support the innovation side, mm-hmm. um, to sort of rising up to meet it. We've saw, we saw all of that growth in the category and it became very trendy and, you know, pitches and, you know, all those mm-hmm. types of things. And then we run into the pandemic, which is, you know, uh, globally impactful on so many ways on business, on people's lives, the personal, the public, you know, internationally, uh, a moment of reckoning that the entire world experienced at the same time, which has how profound that reckoning is, we probably will not know for for decades to come entirely how profound it was. But everything stopped and people had a lot of time to think and evaluate about what they wanted to do with their time, with their money, what they wanted to eat, how they wanted to live, um, what they were able to do, um, what could they afford to do. And, you know, you mentioned earlier on that, um, you know, when we spoke, there was sort of that first you know, voracious interest in healthy, better for you back in 2006. And then the pandemic 2020 coming out of 2020, sort of a renewed veracity for better for you, better health, also layering in a new element, which I think is better for the planet, environmental and sustainability. Uh, But with two, I think, different points from 2008 in 2014-15. And I think those two points are one, better for me, better for my health is attached to mortality in a way that it's never been before. Um, The urgency of my health versus my mortality um, became very top of mind in a very, very real way. And then the other up against that on the other side, you have the supply chain issues where Mm -hmm. suddenly you can't get something or suddenly that thing is not there, or you're physically not able to go to a store and get it. So supply and acquisition became really critical in a way that it never has been before. And, you know, we inter- we, we kept, you know, I, I will always be forever um, impressed and grateful with the Heritage Radio Network staff that literally sprung into action and was getting ready to shelter in place somehow, they knew. And when uh, New York City closed on Monday, I think, March 15th or 16th. We recorded our first episode remotely on Zencaster that first Tuesday because they were ready to go. So very impressive. We didn't stop recording. We didn't stop talking to people. We did not stop posting episodes. And um, there were a lot of great stories out there. There were a lot of great stories of people helping, pivoting their businesses to help people, people um pivoting their businesses to adapt to the new way of living. Uh, and it was really a difficult, but also uh, a, an amazing time to see how people resolve to work through it. And I asked everyone the same question. You know, at this point, people are faced, pe- at that point, people were faced with a very specific set of choices, which certainly in North America, we'd not ever really seen, which was empty grocery store shelves the inability Mm -hmm. to physically get to the store. And then you have a question of, I have a heightened sense and extra time to research. So I have a heightened sense and extra information about the food that I'm eating, but I'm faced with one or two choices at the grocery store because of what's happening right now. So how does my value set work? Am I buying what's there to feed my family that day? Or is the information about, healthier for me, healthier for the planet, so critical that 
I don't. And where was the break even on that? So it was a very interesting time. And I would be curious to know in terms of, you know, investing and looking at how you navigate through that, what what, what was happening in, in your office and in your time in terms of what do you do next? You you bring up an interesting point about that time in, in our lives. There was an in, in, interesting um, level of unique dynamics, especially in the food industry that we had never seen before. As you point out, I think people went back to comfort, but people also went back to like, what is better for you? People were cooking at home and how they thought about food changed dramatically. And the resilience of all of us in terms of how quickly we went back to doing what we did. You talk about, you know, getting back onto your podcast in the financing world. It was almost a voracious appetite to fund new ideas and new business models that saw what was happening in the industry and what we needed to do to alleviate some of these issues. So 2020 and 2021 was historic in terms of some of the investing in the space. And you can argue, you know, whether that was too much or not, that's another question for another day, but it did give light and give opportunity sets to a whole bunch of companies that were solving issues around technology needs uh, to drive delivery, supply chain issues, new food tech companies, new food companies, um, and broadly even technology. When you think about all the things we use today and tech-enabled solutions, a lot of that got significant funding through that period. You're not the first person to say there was a lot of money and people had a voracious appetite for investing in the space. Um, if you're a listener and you have a voracious appetite for investing, think about investing in heritageradionetwork.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you, investing a few dollars a month or a day or a year uh, to help us make more radio. And we are also supported by companies like this one. Stay with us. This episode is supported by HRN business member Gustiamo, the place to buy the best Italian food online. Gustiamo imports the most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers dedicated to their food and traditions. Make Gustiamo your online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Visit G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O.com. Gustiamo supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is about money, putting your money where your mouth is, making the investment. We are talking with Fazila Abdul-Rashid, who is a partner at Revolution. She specifically focuses on Revolution Growth, which is the growth state company's leading disruption, venture capital. Uh, it's a fascinating space. What Fazila decides has interesting value, you may see in your life a year or two or three years from today, which makes her a very interesting person to talk to. We've been talking about the evolution of the food tech space starting back in, oh, about 2008, when we first started to see organic products come onto the market, which at the time were very revolutionary. Now we're taking a look at Alternative proteins, I think, are one of the big, big things. Delivery convenience are one of the big, big things. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, people are really thinking about the environment, their health, their place in that circle of the environment, um, and also spending maybe more time at home or spending more time on other things other than grocery shopping and hunting, hunting and gathering food. So delivery, we hear and talk a lot about as well. Fazila, 
In terms of the alternative protein and the different food tech products, there's an entire category that's not driven by human nutrition or human betterment. It's driven by better for the planet, which is relatively new. Is that new or has that just been taking taking seed, uh, pun intended, uh, so quietly that we didn't really realize it until it just arrived sort of full-blown with the plant-based burger wars? I believe it's been taking seed for a while. As, as we pointed out earlier in this conversation, some of the early funding started in 2015. And so the funding and the development and the technology building has taken some time to get to where we are today. I think the most visible clearly are, as you described, the plant-based burger wars between the two companies that are the most visible. That being said, there's a pr proliferation of many other companies behind it. And you are right, most have been driven for the most part, by an ethos of driving a sustainability revolution. And that's been the primary mission of a lot of these companies as they've gone out to build out these companies. And I'd say there is sort of a rethinking at this point as you look at the evolution of that industry to evolve the category, not to just be better for the planet, but also better for you. And that is the pivot that's happening, I'd say, right at about this time. So first, better for the planet. How many do you think, just categorically from looking at the space, what percentage of, of alternative meat products and plant-based products and alternative protein products, how many of them actually are better for the planet? We've covered a few topics on the show and, and talked to some scientists, people, you know, just because it's not an animal-based product doesn't necessarily mean that the process is better and more efficient and effective. It's still a lab factory process where they're making things and creating things and stripping out elements from other elements. There's a lot of waste. There's water. There's electricity. There's energy. It's an interesting conversation that I think deserves a good debate. That being said, I think when you have to take into consideration a lot of these companies are still early in their evolution to figure out the right business model. This goes back to my early comment. The business model has to reflect the mission and the if your mission of your business is a sustainable solution, not just by the production of the food or what getting what's getting put to the table, but actually the production process, you need to meet that demand. And a lot of companies are early in their evolution to get to that point. I'd say not everyone probably is is you know fully aware of all of the elements of farming as well so i'd say you have to put it in context of how much emissions come from the farming process and to be candid step back and think about food security on the other side there's actually a lot of issues we think about the current situation of pricing of chicken and eggs today driven by another unprecedented issue of avian flu so there is a multiple layers and dynamics that come into the conversation of sustainability, food security, and lack of protein in the market that has driven the alternative protein market. I fully acknowledge what you do say that a lot of these companies don't need to be held accountable individually as they build their own companies to the ethos that they are actually building sustainable production practices. It's almost as if they've arrived very quickly at the similar discussion that we have about farming. Yep. Just because something's a vegetable farm doesn't mean it's good for the environment. And just because something's, you know, an animal farm doesn't mean it's bad for the environment. There's sort of multiple sides to how people, you know, grow food and animals and, and raise them. And, you know, it's such a it's such a debate. There's so much happening. There's so much information. Um, it's almost information overload. Do you think that consumers are just looking for easy labels or categories? So, or, you know, a, a shop like, uh, you know, Whole Foods, when I first encountered it was probably back in, uh, you know, when was the first New York City store? Probably back in the 2000, 
maybe 10 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Something around that time. And they were having a, a, a big growth. They're having big growth and they were really known. I mean, it's obviously a very, very different company now, but at the time their buyers were known as being just like voracious about the checklist of what can and cannot be in that store. Not just in terms of ingredient profiles, but also in terms of as best as they could, you know, verifying the, um, the production process in terms of it being fair and equitable and environmental and all those types of things. So their buyers were doing such a, a, a great job and being very tough about what they would let on their shelves. It's almost like you could walk into that store at that point in time. And if that was your ethos, you could then shop freely from one point of view because you didn't have to read every single every single label and look at every single company to know whether this coffee was harvested, you know, in all the proper ways, in all the correct ways that align with my values. And that made it easy. It, it did made it easy. And I think that's, that's the point we, as in, and I say we, the collective investor and business community needs to make it easier for the consumer that is a much more discerning consumer today than the consumer we had. And I use consumer broadly speaking in 2010, because this industry has changed. I'd say we have to give credit to the Gen Z and the millennials and that whole category who are almost by definition caring about everything they put in their bodies. And everyone else is doing that more and more. So not just the Gen Z and the millennials, but you're seeing that as a key consideration in every decision that they make. And so I'd say it, this is not so much of a, you know, alternative protein against, you know, traditional food. I'd say all large business catering to the consumer has to hold themselves accountable to best business practices. Um, and technology has to catch up to meet some of the ease that is being looked for by this consumer, the point that you just brought up around, do we know where our products come from? Do we know the ingredient profile? If you're making it in a manufacturing plant, you do, and then people can look at the label. But if you're making it in a farm, what's traceability like? Technology today is not the best in having a true traceability chain and uh, figuring out where your supply chain is, where are you getting products from, especially if it's being shipped from other countries. And so some of these technologies are just catching up to the consumer's expectations of what they need to see before they buy something. And yes, they want you to make it easy because they only have three minutes in the grocery store to pick something up, look at a label, and they want to know and trust that the label that they're reading reflects what they want to buy. And not everyone has the time and energy to go and do a ton of research. And so again, they put a trust in a brand. And the brand and the ethos that that brand carries, and the minute you you break that trust, then an issue occurs. And so I think that's just the direction we are in as an industry. And so every player in that industry needs to hold themselves accountable. And and both sides of the of the equation, you know, traditional food and new technologies and new food com companies coming up have to do the same in the in their own constructs. Such an interesting time. I, I'll I'll ask your opinion about. Again, you know, sort of coming into 2020 and 2021 and coming out of that. I spoke with a number of business owners who had set up their company, whether it be a sausage, you know, product company or, uh, you know, farm delivery company. They had built their companies initially to be outside of the usual production chain and supply chain. They have built their companies to be disruptors, to be different, to source their products differently, source specific products, to work with their consumers and customers in a specific way. So that when the pandemic happened and the, the larger supply chain broke, they were able to continue working and doing business because their supply chain was not disrupted because they were sort of outside the larger constructs. So that gave them an opportunity to continue to work and continue to go to market almost in a void in a vacuum. And I had read quite a bit about consumers being forced out of necessity to discover new products or brands that they would not have considered before. Because again, I, I go back to, you know, the almost empty grocery store shelves. Has the pandemic 
even though we retreated because of crisis back to like comfort things and things we know, has the pandemic in a in an perhaps counterintuitive way created a consumer who is more willing to try something new or looking for something new or okay with something new? I think I think it is. So one perfect example is direct-to-consumer food companies, and many have come up now. You could argue there were more more than necessary now that we are, you know, balancing a new way of life that doesn't evolve, revolve around just sitting at home all day long and having things delivered to you. But people have gotten more comfortable with ordering fresh food that gets delivered to your home in nice packages. Um, better healthy for you, DTC drops, you know, one of our portfolio companies, Meaty, came out of that time and people bought this mushroom meat company in that context with DTC drops. And many other companies came up in that way and you didn't have to go to the grocery store and your traditional methods of getting food to meet your demands. So I agree with you. And some of these companies have sustained their business models through the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic to still be big, important companies today alongside the traditional companies. So you um, you mentioned Meaty, which is perhaps a, a good one to just talk about because that'll kind of wrap up, I think, a couple of different trends. And that's one of the businesses in your portfolio. And you also sit on the board. Um, it is mushroom-based alternative protein. True. How do they navigate what their messaging is to consumers is my first question. Um, you know, sort of what's the conversation that you have from inside the business thinking about how you're going to engage people outside is my first question. And then my second question is I would love to really quickly before we go ask you what you're looking for and what you think the trends are right now, what we're going to be seeing more and more of. And I've been seeing a lot about mushrooms, not, <laughs> and I've been seeing a lot about mushrooms in the food space, um, like in meaty in terms of being used as an ingredient to produce something else. I've been seeing a lot about mushrooms in their sort of homeopathic natural medicine capacity, adaptogens, um, mm -hmm. mental focus, better sleep. And I've also been seeing things about psilocybins, which are technically illegal I believe in the United States and Canada, um, but are being used in by people. And then also every now and again, you read something um, where it's being looked at on a medical, from a medical point of view, specifically in, um, you know, therapeutic, emotional, mental spaces. So first question, how does a company like Meaty, which is a new company, which is a new alternative protein, think about conveying their message to the consumer? And then second question, trends, is mushroom one of them? And what are the others? So mushroom is fascinating and you highlighted all the fascinating features <laughs> of mushrooms. Again, it is, I, it's not a one product because there are multiple different strains of fungi that come out and you have to find the right strain for the product. And so for Meaty in, partic in particular was finding a strain that could create a texture that mimics the texturization of how you think about chicken and red meat and the ability to have these long strains, but still be a complete protein. And so it's full of fiber, full of nutrients, 17 grams of protein, 18 grams of fiber. And when you look at the ingredients list, it's literally mycelium, salt, and water. So you can read the ingredient list. It's clean, it's clear, and it's simple. And so when you think about the messaging, that's very much the messaging. It is a whole food protein that's better for you. And at the same time, because it's made from a sustainable solution, it's all it takes is growing the yeast in a sugar formula and you create a vet of this mushroom root. Of course, there's some scientific capability that needs to grow it in the way that you get that kind of um, texturization, but that's really it. And so when you tell that story, that's really the story, right? The story that it is better for you, but also better for the planet. And it takes sustainable processes to make what it makes today. And you can eat it as part of your center of the plate regularly without having to worry of what other, you know, side effects there are with putting this into your body too often, because you're essentially eating mushroom as you would as a nature, any other nature-based food. 
than you eat today. So I think that's the core messaging there. And that takes education to a customer that is today a little hesitant of a category that has been historically, as we described it earlier, mainly better for the planet without having a clean, clean and clear eye, <laughs> no pun intended on clean, <laughs> or better for you. Fair. It's, it's all just fascinating. Um, so alternative proteins are a trend. Um, it's going through evolution and growing pains and new players and different types of things and alternative proteins. We have, um, as we've discussed on this show, lab grown, cell based fermentation, you know, a, a whole cornucopia of different types of technologies bringing alternative proteins to market that are mimicking animal and seafood and ocean protein categories. That's definitely here. It's just growing and evolving. What are some of the other trends that you think are happening now or that you think are perhaps still in the R&D stage that are going to come online and come onto market shelves later this year, next year? So some of the trends that we're seeing, it's not as much around, you just described all of the food tech trends, and I think you're right, that's here to stay. There's also an evolution of a lot of need and demands against what we consider to be the supply chain crisis that we're dealing with. You know, um, vertical farming is another area we're seeing more and more companies developing capability sets and building some of these in quote unquote food deserts. Um, you know, how do you bring food and better for you food to rural communities in ways that use technology um, and provide them with fresh produce that doesn't rely on the supply chain the same way we had to historically. And hopefully some of these companies become big real industries. It's, an, it's early. It takes a lot of money. It takes time. It takes technology. But that's one. The other one is um, that we are acutely focused on is supply chain integrity. And we talked about traceability a lot. So this is less around, you know, food tech and restaurant tech and all these cool robotic and other things, but some, but still very integral to making sure that we know what is put on our plate every day. And, and there are a lot of companies using unique technological solutions to figure out supply chain integrity and traceability in in ways that we haven't before. So some of these things I think are new in the industry. I don't think you are going to see food innovation go away though. I think people are always going to evolve around coming up with new trends around, you mentioned there's a trend around mushroom, There's there was a trend around cauliflower. There's always going to be, I think, people thinking about food uniquely and how do you put better for you things on the plate in a meaningfully scalable way. And that I continue to believe there in, that is interesting. And there are a lot of food VC funds and we are a tech generalist fund, but I've been very encouraged to see a lot of purely food VC funds come up to really fund an industry that continues to have great ideas and great innovation. It is such an interesting category. And, and you know, oftentimes we don't necessarily understand what technology is. We don't understand necessarily even some of the, like the financial technology, the average person's not really going to engage with that knowingly. It might be, you know, the, the tech and the programs that run behind all the things that we do on our day-to-day -day lives, but everybody eats and everybody is interested in eating something and things and goes to a store and is buying something somewhere. So the universality of it, I think is also what makes it appealing and, and, also appealing on the investment side because everybody does eat. So that's a lot of potential business. One quick question. I, I Wasn't the blockchain supposed to fix all of the uh, uh, supply <laughs> chain traceability? <laughs> is that just too simple? Is that too simple a way of looking at it? But I, th I feel I like think there was a period is. of time where like everybody was talking about that blockchain is going to be the thing. And I think it was Walmart was running some tests using blockchain technology on a couple of their uh, fresh, fresh fruit or fresh produce types of things to track from A to Z and, and see how that worked right, right around the time when we were having all of those, um, outbreaks in produce. Yep. 
So the only thing I would say when you hear these buzzwords, think about, you know, whether it's blockchain or alternative protein is buzzwords tell you that people are, there's a lot of early funding to this. I think before these solutions become true scalable solutions, there still needs to be a lot of dollars, a lot of iterations and a lot of, you know, tests that need to happen. So when, when you read an article that someone has created something and is using it, doesn't mean that it's working perfectly at the time that, that they're being done. And so I think blockchain is exactly one of them. I think it's a unique, interesting technology. It is taking its time to figure out its place in all of its different use, use cases, <laughs> including this one. <laughs> uh, similar to your comment on mushroom and all the other unique you know, um, avenues that mushroom can be used. So interestingly, the two founders who started Meaty were material science um, scientists coming out of their PhD and was looking at this as an integrity used in materials uh, for buildings because mushroom has a lot of strength. So um, you've seen a whole bunch of companies that come up with sustainable leather and things like that that is actually made of mushroom. You point out that there's adaptogens. I think there is an element when you think about mushrooms and food where you have to meet a threshold of the fact that it's also safe and, you know, meets, especially when you're using it for medical use, I think there's a lot of potential here. But when I think about medicine, when I think about functional foods, this is why it's taken even a company like Meaty this long to get to a point where they found the right construct that meets safety, health, and scalability capability sets. And you will see that in all the other opportunity sets for mushroom in medicine and in health and wellness. So much happening. And I think um, I'm taking notes. I always take notes while I'm doing the show on paper with a fountain pen, actually. I'm very analog about it. But maybe we'll do a mushroom episode. Maybe we'll have one of the guys Ooh. from Media and maybe we'll round up some of the other um, functional mushroom people and, and do something about that because I think it's interesting and I've been seeing quite a bit about it. So that might be a fun thing to do later this spring. Um, Fazila, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, Fazila Abdul Rashid, partner at Revolution. You can t check out more about the fund that she works on at revolution.com slash growth. Um, it's all fascinating. You know, if you want to know what you're going to be eating, you know, a couple years from now, paying attention to this space is definitely a way to get the early, early intel. I want to thank all of our listeners, our members, our sponsors, and supporters. Um, we have been around for more than a decade, so we are not a startup, but we are a little bit like public radio and we kind of feel like a startup. And we certainly do talk to a lot of people who are in startups. If you have an idea or you're an entrepreneur or you invest and you are in a fund group, reach out to us. We'd love to hear what you're working on, what you're investing in. Techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We're very interactive. You can find us online, on social media, at TechBytesHRN. You can always find us here every week on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is TechBytes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.